Welcome everybody to Hopeful Majority number one. Yes, you found our podcast out of the other 5 million podcasts. This one is going to be worth it. Today's question is what actually is the Hopeful Majority? Yes, the title of the show. And our guest is going to be John Wood Jr., Senior National Ambassador to Braver Angels, a national organization bridging political differences. You're probably asking yourself, Manu, why am I getting on this podcast? Why are we here? It's for one simple reason, and that is because people like you and I in the hopeful majority believe in one thing, and that is that we're willing to put aside our politics for a higher calling, and that higher calling is the American experiment. The American experiment, it demands and requires that we're open-minded, that we listen to each other, that we critique each other, we challenge each other, we engage, but importantly, we don't feed into outrage. On this show, we're building nuance and fighting outrage. Every week, we come at you, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, because we're building a hopeful majority on a weekly basis and it needs everybody's support. So let's get on with episode number one. So with that, let's get started. What is the hopeful majority? I want to start with actually an observation that I started experiencing over the last uh, five to six years. I graduated college in 2020. I began college in 2017. I was a pre-med student. I had no interest in politics. I had no interest in democracy and all of the stuff that I'm focused on right now. If you told me then that I would be launching a show about how we actually strengthen our democracy, I would have thought that you were crazy. That said, it all began for me in February of 2017 when a speaker by the name of Milo Yiannopoulos came to UC Berkeley where I went to school. And I remember it distinctly. I was walking back and from class and there's this cafe and inside the cafe, the cafe window is broken and inside there, there's a CNN screen. And that said, CNN banner, it said, UC Berkeley students protest free speech. And I was like, what's going on? And I thought, again, it was another protest at Berkeley. We protest everything. We protest big things, small things, things on the right, things on the left. We have a great relationship with protests. I think that's what makes the institution a fascinating uh, uh, institution in American society. So I just assumed it was another protest. And boy, was I wrong because it actually turned out to be the largest protest in Berkeley's uh, history since the 60s and, and the free speech movement since MLK came to campus cost the university uh, uh, a lot of money and damages. Importantly, the campus community was left hurting. And the next day, me and some random people created a space to just listen. We went on campus. We collected some folks. And next week, we held the space where we wanted to allow students the opportunity, those that protested Milo, those that hadn't protested Milo, those that were interested in free speech, those that wanted to challenge the precepts of free speech, just a space to hear each other. Let's just listen. Conversation's not happening. Let's facilitate that conversation. And again, I had no aspiration to build a show or to build what would become one of the largest and fastest growing movements in the country to bring folks together, Bridge USA. At that moment, it was just a space. Stickling remember observing that space. Students showed up with their guards up, and by the end, they were listening to each other. They were hearing each other. They were challenging each other. So that was the first thing I observed in 2017 is that we had these massive protests and yet people were ready to still listen. People were ready to give each other a chance. The next story starts in June of 21, where I went on a road trip. Fast forward, I graduated college and now I'm full-time on this amazing movement with some of my best friends called Bridge USA that I work on. And we're driving. I was driving from Austin to Boston. Don't ask me why. 
Austin to Boston. I know that sounds like some weird rhyme. It's just because Boston's where my parents live and Austin is in the middle of the country. California would have been too far. Start driving. Go from Austin to to Lake Charles, Louisiana, to New Orleans, to uh, uh, Meridian, Mississippi, Selma, Alabama, up through Georgia, then end up in North Carolina because my foot literally stopped working. I couldn't drive anymore. And so flew to North Carolina and then DC and then Boston. Met conservative pastors in Georgia. Met black activists in Selma. Met uh, very liberal students in Austin, Texas. And everybody said something around three things. One is I just want to live in a country where people appreciate and acknowledge me. Second is I want to live in a country where my kids do better than me. And third is that I want to live in a country that respects, provides me dignity, allows me to feel safe. It's not a complicated set of political asks. In fact, it was common across ideology, across race, across gender, across background, because it turns out that we're all on team human. Turns out that we're all on team human. So that was the second observation I made. And then the third part of my observation that helped me inform what is this concept of the hopeful majority, that helped me inform the work that I do with Bridge USA is these everyday conversations I would have when I was driving to the local grocery store. I was walking and our mailman would walk by. I would um, uh, walk in past in the cafeteria and the cafeteria lady would talk to me and uh, I would have these conversations bus driver, um, passenger while I was driving or taking the subway and all these different conversations, people seemed oddly nice to each other. We live in this very divided time. What I'm told is to be the most divided time in the history of America in some cases. And yet people are interpersonally one-on-one, very kind, very honest. If you utilize Twitter as a gauge for my interactions, you'd be shocked. And as Dave Chappelle says, Twitter's not a real space. And that was true in all these everyday conversations. So what did I observe? My story from UC Berkeley in the early days, uh, people wanted a space to listen. They wanted the space to be heard. On this road trip, people espoused same similar aspirations of their country, of their democracy, regardless of where they stood on the political spectrum. And finally, through these everyday conversations, people are are willing um, to be kind, to be empathetic. The most people you walk up to on the street and have a weird conversation because I'm a weirdo and just have a dialogue, they're, they're willing to listen. And it all came ahead to me this past February, February of 23. The organization, and again, the movement that we're building, Bridge USA, it's Gen Z movement with 50 college campus chapters and 20 high school chapters. And, and we had this summit in February of 23 in Orlando. We had amazing students from all across the political spectrum, everybody holding really strong ideas and, and really strong beliefs. And uh, we had students from Louisiana and Texas and New York and California of all different identities, backgrounds, races. Uh, in fact, I think we had done a survey. So 28% of our leaders were liberal. 28% of leaders were conservative. 44-ish percent were independent. Uh, racially diverse group. And yet everybody was there. We were all behind this movement. And then it hit me. Then it hit me. That's why I felt compelled to start the show. That's why I felt compelled to highlight the work that we're doing, not only at Bridge USA, but to think through critically 
how we answer this question of building hope at this time of hopelessness, it hit me that everybody at that summit in our movement was there not because they were ideological moderates or that they all believed the same things. In fact, they held very strong views. Why those students at Berkeley in those early days were ready to have that conversation, and even though they stood on different sides of the issue of, of putting limits on free speech or on that road trip where the conservative pastors in Georgia and, our, and the black activists in Selma believe very different things in terms of ideology and sometimes even in terms of political preconditions, but they all said kind of the same thing. They all were standing for the same process. Those everyday conversations I was hosting, I think what hit me was the fact that there's a majority of us out there in this country that hold very ideologically different beliefs that are from very different backgrounds, and yet we all share the same mindset. We all share the same temperament. We all share the same process. We all share the how to our many different what's. What I mean by that is we all embody what I call through our work, the bridge mindset, that we're willing to be curious. We're willing to be open-minded instead of being closed-minded. We're willing to be empathetic instead of being intolerant. We want to create spaces that bring people in as opposed to creating spaces that shut people out. That the hopeful majority shares this temperamental alignment we might believe very different things, but we are there to have those conversations. We want those disagreements. We want to come back. We want to engage more. We want to solve our problems. We want solutions. And the way that we differ from this vocal minority out there that is imposing its closed-mindedness on what often seems to be a very exhausted majority is because we're quiet. We're just not out there. We're not active. And... And it's fundamentally why I actually got out there and launched a show. Anybody that knows me knows that this is not something that I have interest in, honestly. I am involved in this work to give other people a platform, to give other young people a chance to bridge our differences. And yet I'm here because I believe that if we in the hopeful majority start stepping up and actually calling for the fact that we demand a society in which we're willing to have very tough disagreements and yet come back to the table, that we want a society guided by empathy, by listening, by curiosity, then we get somewhere. That the hopeful majority is not only necessary for change, for progress, for building a world that we all believe in. Um, we might differ in that worldview. We might differ in that, but we are all standing by a process that we all believe in the value and the ambition of the American experiment, that a deliberative democracy is what it takes to actually move the needle forward, that whether you believe that there's a crisis of religion in our society and that there's cultural threats to how our society is weaved, or you believe that climate change is a threat, or you believe that there's a crisis of free speech, or you believe that we need more gun control, the hopeful majority has all those different beliefs but shares that temperament and that mindset. And this is key to the American experiment. It is foundational. And that is why I think it's especially important now with the 2024 election coming up that people like us step up and get engaged. That's why we're building the show. And that's why we're having these conversations. So lastly, what is not the hopeful majority? The hopeful majority is not a group of moderates. It is, in fact, not only not a group of moderates, it is a group of very strong people with very strong convictions who are ultimately standing for something higher than party principle. They're standing for human principle. 
the hopeful majority is not some kumbaya statement. It's not a bunch of people that want to hold their hands together. It's people that are ready to argue, ready to stand up for what they believe in. And yet at the same time, they're standing up for what they believe in after recognizing that the other person also has a story. The other person also has a background, but they're standing up for what they believe in as long as they're also willing to create space for the other to be challenged. Stand up for what we believe in, be challenged, be heard, have a real conversation. Maybe we might get somewhere. You might even learn something. I know it's shocking. And finally, the hopeful majority is not vocal. And that is, again, the reason for this podcast, for the show, for why I need you to be building this majority with me. Because my bet is on the bet of the strength of the human spirit. I believe that those, the vocal minority, again, not the ideological extremes. We've got all types of extremes. We all have different beliefs, different ideas, but the vocal minority across the political spectrum, there's a bunch of even moderates that are loud about their moderation. Those people are controlling because they bet on the submissiveness of everybody else. They bet on the submissiveness of the human spirit. Well, we're ready to build something. We're ready to build something exciting, unique. And that is the hopeful majority. It is a group of people from all across the political spectrum, from different races, from different backgrounds, and different identities who are putting aside their party and their labels to stand for a higher calling. And that calling is the American experiment. And so with that, I want to welcome John Wood Jr., who is somebody that is not only going to make history by being the first guest in the hopeful majority, but he's somebody that has challenged my thinking, has pushed my thinking on a lot of this work. And importantly, he's somebody that I think speaks on very difficult issues like race and class and income in our politics with a lot of nuance. He's a nuanced person. So with that, let's welcome second part of the show, John Wood Jr. John Wood Jr., welcome to the hopeful majority, sir. I'm glad to be here with you, Manu. Good to see you, pal. John, I have to say that this one is for the books. And the reason why this one is, is, is a conversation for the books is because this is the inaugural episode of the hopeful majority. And uh, it goes without saying, there's literally no one else, maybe except our dear friend Monica Guzman, that we would open this first episode with. Yeah, well, that's high praise, of course. And uh, kudos on the title, man, hopeful majority. That's much more. Uh, much more empowering than the exhausted majority. It's hard to imagine. Do you, the exhausted do you feel hopeful? I do. Oh yeah, I'm always hopeful. I am um, the eternal optimist. Um, for better. But, but now you feel more hopeful, right? Now I feel more hopeful because now I know that the hopeful folks are actually in the majority. I didn't realize that. But whether that's um, a statement of fact or an aspirational declaration, I it makes me feel uh, hopeful all the more. So yeah, good to be on. With well, you. well, John, as the as the as we just shared in in the first sort of previous 10 minutes, the, the focus of this conversation that I, I really wanted to open up with was what actually is the hopeful majority? Because I think we often think about the silent majority. We often think about the exhausted majority. Uh, but as I shared in the earlier sort of segment, you know, I've met so many amazing young people, and I know you've met so many folks where people are just sick and tired of how polarized we are. People are sick and tired of how divided we are. And importantly, people are looking for hope. They're looking for optimism. What, what's your story? What, what have you seen in, in, in sort of the much longer time that you spent understanding our American politics? <laughs> yeah, much, much longer. You know, you're one of the few people in this uh, line of work who you know, makes me feel old when we, when we get to talking. Although that's changing, of course, is Gen Z becomes becomes more engaged. 
um, yeah, so you know, what have I gotten from people? I definitely get from people um, across a broad swath of the, of the American population to the extent to which I interact with folks. Um, a sense that at the end of the day, uh, we do have more in common than we have that is that that differentiates us. Um, that uh, you know the uh, differences that we have in our politics are important, but that we could probably get along a lot better if it weren't so profitable for the media and for the politicians to uh, to exacerbate the divisions that exist between Americans. I think a lot of people feel that uh, on, on some level, the divide is sort of artificial, right? Now, you know, obviously it depends on who you're talking to, because you've got plenty of Americans who really are very much tribalized and polarized. Uh, and uh, you got a lot of people who, who don't have a whole lot of optimism that we can really speak and reason together across some of these divisions. But I think that most Americans are still available to the idea that we can. I think that people feel daunted by the degree to which the uh, the game sort of seems to be rigged in the direction of of sort of you know stoking our fears, our contempt, and deranging us against each other in some way or the other. So, so, so let me let me ask you this. So, if you remember when. I was on your podcast a while ago. It was in May, but it feels like a while ago. I told you never in a million years would I jump behind the microphone and actually have a conversation. <laughs> never in a million years would I join the millions of podcasts, including your amazing podcast, and try to compete with everybody. And part of what I am always very careful about in everybody's time is is like, why are we actually here? Why are we having this conversation? And the stage that I had set with the earlier part of the show was to articulate again to your point that it is much more profitable to divide and it is it is it is harder to bring people together i want to take a step back though and actually talk about your story uh the way that i want to split up this conversation john is in three parts one is you as a person want to get behind the political labels want to get behind the 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 eloquent persona that is john wood and really get to who you are what drives you what motivates you because i think we in the hopeful majority need to know each other the second part of this conversation is actually diving a little bit deeper into the incentive structures of our politics, kind of what you hinted at there. And the the third part is is closing with actually the question that I ask and will be asking every guest, which is, what does America mean to you? So with the first question of who you are as a person, tell us about yourself. Like why why tell us about why you are probably one of the most eloquent people I know that can really talk effectively on race in American democracy at a time where it is very difficult to talk about such controversial and difficult topics. <laughs> well, it's hard to sound humble following a, following a setup like the, that. The point is that your humility was already checked at the door. Thank you. Okay. We're on a podcast talking to each other. <laughs> right. Um, so I am um, I'm a mixed kid. It's probably a, a reasonable place to start, given your, given your lead in. Um, I am the son of an African-American woman born in the uh, early 60s from inner city L.A. and the uh, son also of a, um, of a white man from Tennessee who was born in 1950 and who is politically um, very conservative, especially these days. And, um, I, you know, I, I grew up as sort of um, an interpreter and a translator of experiences. Um, 
you know, it wasn't just that my mom was white and black, but that their cultural worldviews and their socioeconomic backgrounds were also starkly different from each other. And those latter two factors are, you know, really probably even more important than the racial distinction. I mean, race doesn't really have any significance intrinsically, except that it sort of correlates to all sorts of other variables that might suggest differences in our in our um, experiences and therefore differences in our points of view, because viewpoint is given shape by experience. Um, and so being the product of such sort of significantly differing... Um, uh, Let me actually ask you, was that difficult growing up? Did, did you ever feel like your identity was in question? Like, how, how was it like growing up with uh, uh, a white father from Tennessee and, and a black mother from L.A.? Yeah, um, there certainly were some uh, some challenges. I, there's there are always times in which I felt like I, you know, maybe uh, maybe maybe wasn't black enough because of sort of the way I spoke or the way I, um, you know, dressed or what have you. And there are times where I felt like, oh, maybe I wasn't uh, maybe I wasn't white enough either. Somehow, maybe I didn't have some of the connections and, um, you know, I don't know, um, sort of uh, paths through some of the doors that some other kids had. And I knew that that wasn't simply a function of color. But you know, I, I remember, um, you know, sort of seeing, you know, kids going away, to, going away to Harvard and Yale and sort of thinking like, oh, well, you know, maybe they've got families that are connected in ways that my family isn't. And now, you know, it didn't help that I was uh, actually a pretty terrible student, believe it or not, <laughs> back when I was in school. Um, but, um, yeah. It seems like that's a common theme, by the way, within people that seem to be doing all right, is oftentimes we don't do that well in school. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a thing, to be sure. Um, well, well, let me actually ask you on this point of identity. This yeah. is fascinating, because I think one of the difficulties in our moment is that oftentimes these loud voices in our society end up defining our identities, especially for those of us that are oftentimes trying to figure out where we stand. How, how did you ultimately become comfortable in your identity and in, 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 in your shoes? Um, how long did it take? How was that process? And, and how does that relate to, to, to you as a person? Oh, man, that's a deep question. Um, you know, identity is more than just skin color, obviously. Um, and that's really a, sort of the way in which race kind of weaves into that subject matter for me is, a, is kind of a much longer conversation. Um, my identity, though, really began to, I think, form in a more comfortable way when I was able to fully embrace the, uh, the fact that, you know, each side of my family, each side of my heritage and my history were equally dignified components of who I am that did not represent the entirety of who I was or who I am, but that were indispensably part of the foundation and the formation of, of me, right? Uh, and so, you know, I sometimes felt like there was some pressure to kind of pick a side, but when I rejected that, you know, when I rejected the idea that I needed to do that, and I think that I, I probably sort of consciously came to reject that idea when I was probably around 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, I think that that set me on a path towards being more fully 
more fully integrated. Now, you know, I think that it helped quite a bit that actually I grew up in a place where overall, you know, I sometimes got teased for being for for being mixed by, you know, some kids for one reason or another. But overall, I lived in a community that seemed to really be sort of rooting for me on the basis of my <laughs> of my uh, skin color and, and the fact that I was a mixed kid. I mean, I grew up in Culver uh, City, California, which I would describe as being pretty socially progressive on the whole in a very diverse community. As a matter of fact, the Culver City School District, last I checked, was the fourth most diverse school district in America. And I was definitely aware of the fact that particularly teachers and older people in the community, uh, again, they almost seemed to sort of cheer the idea that <laughs> that I was mixed somehow. I had so this, is, this is actually exactly why I wanted to have this conversation, and, and especially with you as one of the first guests, is what's fascinating about your story is, is like, you're talking about the fact that race isn't your entire identity. You're talking about the fact that you grew up with a, a white father from Tennessee and a black mother from LA, that you went to a, a city like Culver City, which is one of the most progressive and socially progressive cities out there in terms of its makeup, but also very diverse and different. Uh, last time I visited you, we had bean pies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It seems like you're somebody that is ready to embrace the nuance of, of identity of life, of who we are. Uh, what is your advice to us at this moment in society where we throw away nuance at the drop of the hat and immediately become entirely driven by our label? Mm. Well, you know, I, I think that it's important for people to embrace their to embrace their heritage, to embrace their identity, however you weight the different factors that give that identity dimension. So, you know, I'm not somebody who begrudges people uh, having some self-identification with an ethnic group or racial group, for that matter, if it correlates to some larger sort of cultural context, which you know gives some some bond and connection to their to their siblings and their parents and their grandparents and ancestors and so forth. I don't begrudge people any of that. But I think that it's important for people to understand that whether we were talking about ethnic identity or political or ideological convictions, religious identity, that each of these things, if they are important to you, ought also to serve as sort of a window through which to understand the broader human experience that's held by people who are not necessarily going to share your labels, but who are going to hold points of identification and experience that for them are just as deep and just as impactful. Um, my friend Rakeem Brooks, who's the president for the Alliance for Justice uh, and a well-known uh, legal mind and progressive, uh, uh, pro progressive activist, uh, he talks about um, identity in a way that I think is, is helpful. He, he, for him, you know, his self-identification as a black man is an important thing. And yet he thinks of that identity as being as being emancipatory. And, and by that, what he means is that it sort of frees him to be able to being able to see through the depth of his own commitment to his own sort of identity, how deep that feeling is going to be for other people as well. And it creates a position from which he can begin to more thoroughly empathize and thoroughly connect with people on the basis of the fact that they have shared convictions, they have shared 
sorts of commitments uh, to to their communities, to their heritage, etc. And so as long as your commitment to your own identity becomes a pathway towards greater empathy for other people, I think it's, it, I think it's a positive, uh, and a positive potentially in all directions. It's when our, uh, our commitment to our labels puts us in a position of not being able to understand other people, uh, it, in a position to actively sort of exclude other people from being worthy of our understanding, of our compassion that our labels really get in the way uh, of human relationships and sort of stunt the, the, the moral and ethical uh, growth, ethical and intellectual growth of human beings. So when, when the commitment to our identity gets in the way of our ability to empathize, that, that is powerful, man. So I, I think about my story, and I want you to help me out with this a little bit. So I, 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 was, I was born in the U.S. in December of 98. My parents immigrated from India in uh, in in earlier ninety eight. I grew up in in the U S. and I moved back to India to live with my grandparents for like the first five years of my life while my parents lived here. Then came back, moved a bunch. We're all over the place. Confused identity to your point, not knowing where you fit in, who you belong to. I felt like my life was always trying to empathize with people, almost as a survival strategy to fit in. Yeah. For me, like empathy wasn't this like I'm gonna be empathetic today. It was. I had to actively create space to help build relationships, build friendships. Can you can you complicate the notion of empathy for me a little bit? Because oftentimes when we think about empathy, uh, we think about it purely from a kumbaya sense. Like, let's just empathize with each other. But in my case, it was a legitimate strategy to create friendships, relationships, and be a person that I am today. In your case, it was a way for you to figure out your identity and also to meet other people where they are. What what does I guess empathy mean to you? Well, you know, I relate to your story uh, too. I'm mean, just sort of, as uh, you said, as a matter of social survival. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I had some of that for for myself also. I mean, I was always a natural chameleon. You know, it wasn't just the fact that I was white and black. I mean, my dad was somebody who had a great interest in other in other cultures, um, and through boxing and through through music. Uh, sort of exposed me to a lot of different cultural groups. And so my dad was very good at picking up just a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of Korean. And, you know, but he knew all the sort of like Latin American boxing champions and he knew athletes from different countries. And so he'd always find a little bit to sort of like talk about with people. And he'd put on sort of a clumsy accent, but it was always very good. Did you have a language growing up? Did I have a language growing up? I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up bilingual. I learned to speak some Spanish later Man, on. You're just that you're just that special and, and nuanced like the rest of us, you know, speaking more than one language. <laughs> well, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time. Um, and so growing up in L.A., you know, it's really the parts of L.A. that I spend most time in are overall sort of predominantly Latino, black and Latino. Um, and um you know, there's a period of time where, I, first of all, I grew up in boxing gyms. I, I, I grew up uh, sort of going back and forth from different parts of inner city LA. And so we were always talking to uh, to folks who, uh, you know, Latinos, mostly Mexicans, but not, not exclusively. And uh, my dad would like pull up alongside somebody and he'd say something like, hey, he usually says something like, uh, what, you know, what can you tell me about, uh, you know, Roberto Duran, you know, multi-page. Well, no, he'd start off by saying, you know, hey, ¿dónde eres tú, señor? You know? Person would answer be like, ah, I'm from uh, you know Mexico City, and be like, oh yeah, in Casey Ciudad, you know, what's, you know, um, you know, what city in Mexico? 
And my dad would say something like, well, Viva el Gran Campeón de Mexico, Julio Cesar Chavez, you know, like he would just sort of like go into this whole thing, like, you know, celebrating the cultures of like Latinos and Latino fighters and whatnot. And it would always be this point of connection, like, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about, you know? And so when I was a kid, um, I was really good at code switching. I mean, I could speak white, uh, <laughs> you know, which is just to say sort of like proper and kind of like, you know, this sort of stereotypical kind of like putting sure the G is at the end of all, mm. the, you know, all, all the words and, you on that. and whatnot. And then, you know, I could, I could speak, uh, like I was, you know, from the inner city, you know, I, uh, could speak like, you know, a kid who was from the hood first, uh, for lack of a <laughs> more sophisticated way of putting it, you know? Uh, but then, you know, uh, when I did learn a bit of Spanish and my hair grew out a little longer, you know, me being sort of complex, you know, having the complexion that I have at a certain point, People couldn't tell whether I was like Puerto Rican or Dominican or Cuban. And for a while I was working, uh, tutoring kids in Hispanic neighbors in, in Hispanic neighborhoods. And I knew enough Spanish to sort of be able to blend in a bit uh, that way too. I mean, I never pretended to be so, uh, Hispanic, but people would assume that. And so that, that way of being has always come fairly natural uh, to me. I could speak like a Southerner because my father's family are, you know, they're from the South and I could sort of switch that on, you know, without even really thinking about it, depending on who I was in a room with, you know? So this, so this is why I, by the way, for everybody listening, we had no idea this is where the conversation was going to go. Right. And, and I think part of what I've, I've, I've found from this and what I actually want to get at is then you ran for Congress as a Republican. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why I say it like that is because in today's world, if I had started off the conversation with, there's reason why on this show we don't read anybody's biographies. People can look you up, people can figure it out, but we, the hopeful majority, we treat people as nuanced individuals trying to look past labels. And the reason why I was, it was fascinating about your story, you know, where you grew up, where you're from, you know, same with me. I, I still am trying to figure out my politics. And yet, if I'd started off and said, John, you know, Republican member, uh, as somebody that ran for Republican Congress, and what year was it? Uh, 2014 2014 in in la by the way which in and of itself seems to be an act of courage um <laughs> yeah. uh people would have immediately made assumptions about you so now that we've got that set that you're this you're this individual that's got a complex identity and you are are somebody that is embracing all these different cultures here's what i gotta ask you why is it that we live in an environment today where if i'd let off with the label you're a republican you're somebody that ran for republican congress that your entire story and identity would be reduced to the three or four assumptions that everybody makes about being either a Republican or a Democrat or an independent in today's society. Yeah, right. Well, you know, yeah, we've loaded up stereotypical associations with party identification in a way that, uh, you know, historically wasn't really uh, so powerfully uh, true. Um, so, I mean, you're well aware, of course, Manu, but there was a, for, for most of American history, uh, parties were not so ideologically uniform. Of course, you, you know, in the, certainly in the middle of the 20th century, uh, you had liberal Republicans, you had conservative Democrats. The parties were more sort of pragmatic apparatuses seeking to build large ideological tents uh, within the party structures. And that, of course, uh, began to change, uh, particularly coming, going into and coming out of the the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And you got to a point to where, you know, people who were progressive on or liberal on sort of civil rights issues were overwhelmingly democratic. They have, 
you got to a point where, to where people who were socially conservative were overwhelmingly Republican, people who are more religious were overwhelmingly Republican, more secular, tending towards the left. Uh, and now, of course, you know, the, um, the, the racial segmentation of the parties is fairly pronounced. The Republican Party is majority white party. The Democratic Party is majority minority. So, you know, it's plurality of white people, I think, in the Democratic Party still. White people, I think, still make up the largest single group in the Democratic Party, but it is a much more diverse overall sort of coalition. And so, you know, all of these other features of identity, uh, you know, uh, religion, uh, political sort of orthodoxy, um, race and ethnicity, also geography, right? I mean, the Republican Party is largely concentrated uh, in the South, uh, and in more rural parts of America, the Democratic Party is much more concentrated on the coasts and in America's uh, cosmopolitan and uh, urban urban centers. Um, the the party labels stand in as proxies for all sorts of other um, aspects of of who we are. But that in turn becomes you know supported as distorted into sort of the worst stereotypes of what it means to be any of those things. So if you're a straight white you know Christian male who's, you know, got a lot of money, you might just sort of simply assume that, you know, this is somebody who is, uh, you know, who is uh, privileged, arrogant, and maybe even a, a white supremacist or a Christian, you know, Christian nationalist or something. And, you know, on the other hand, if you're, you know, a gay person of color from the inner city and an activist, you might just assume that, you know, this is some radical commie who hates God and hates America. You know. Yeah, it's kind of like the sibling problem in families. You know, if I if I tell you that you're the middle sibling, I automatically associate X, Y, and Z with you. And if you're the younger sibling, then you must be a total spoiled brat. And if you're the older sibling, well, God help you, you must have the largest ego in the room. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> what what's what's odd to me though is like when I think, and again, this is me now speaking as more of a member of my generation's Gen Z, and I think about mm -hmm. your experience as a millennial, and rightfully so, as you pointed out. Uh, you are usually the younger person in these conversations. So I'm glad to have upstaged you. Um, <laughs> and so, so let me ask this, which is like, why is it that uh, the current moment in our politics is one that immediately reduces people to these boxed identities? But then as I think about a young person like myself, the, people are immediately like, where do you stand? Left, right? Where, where, what's your politics? Are you, are, you for, are you for Bernie? Are you for Trump? And then the moment I say one or the other, I must have X, Y, and Z characteristics that define me. I must be uh, uh, somebody with this thing and that thing, and I like this thing. And what I'm just confused by is that we as humans want complexity in our lives. We don't want to be reduced to these buckets. Why is it that we are so easily reducible? Or maybe <laughs> is there something that the well, hopeful majority can be doing? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Manu, I'm not, I, I, I think you're, you're half right at least. You know, we want complexity in our lives insofar as we understand that we ourselves are complex and nuanced. But I think sometimes we want like complexity and nuance for me, but not for thee, at least insofar as, you know, we may want people to sort of take whatever our faults or shortcomings are in the context of the larger picture of who we are. But then at the same time, it takes a little bit more mental energy to do that. It's sort of easier to just look at you through the lens of a stereotype and just say, ah, but you're, you know, I can tell that this, that, or the other is true, true about you because of the hat that you're, that you're wearing and sort of write you off 
in that way. Now, you know, you ask people sort of directly, right? Should you be judging a book by its cover? And I think that in, in a moment where you draw somebody's attention to that question, they will typically say, well, no, of course not. Everybody is, you know, sort of unique and individual and you want to understand people for who they are. But uh, that's not always the instinct. Uh, human beings have to make snap judgments all day long about all sorts of things, right? Um, it takes a little bit of, of labor to sort of think deeply about, the, about, well, about anything and certainly about complicated human beings. And um, well, well, let me just, this is what frustrates me. And I, I want you to dig into this deeper because we, we, we it, yes, you're right. It takes mental energy. It takes effort. And yet all we demand in our society right now is we complain about the fact that people aren't putting the effort. People are not putting in the energy. And yet we want effort. We want to think. And we live in a society right now that is one of the most privileged societies in the history of humanity. We have writ large, just from a pure statistical basis, almost everything we could possibly ask for at our fingertips. You look at the relatively um, poor in our society, compare them to the relatively poor in other societies. You look at the relatively rich in our society, compare them to the relatively rich in other societies. We are doing better marginally. And yet, we have a hard time putting the energy in to be complex in our democracy. Either the question is, we don't try to get people there, or the question becomes, how do we get people there? And is mm -hmm. it necessary to get people there? Maybe we, maybe we don't want this, to your point. Well, you know, I think that, first of all, human wants are multifaceted, right? We oftentimes want things that are in contradiction with each other, right? Like I want to be healthy. I, I want to be able to, you know, run, uh, run a mile without getting, without getting short of breath. And I want to have completely uh, clear skin and great level of energy. And I also, you know, want to eat big fat cheeseburgers and candy bars all day, you know? So, you know, it's just different parts of the of dilemma life. in my life in a nutshell, man. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, but we do need to get people there. Now, I think that, uh, you know, we have to understand the fact that everybody's not in the same position or situation in our society. Um, I, I take your point that, uh, relatively speaking, rich and poor tend to do better in America than their counterparts do in other countries. I think that that's broadly fair. but. Uh, for somebody who is in a more disadvantaged position in American life and who feels more directly under assault by whatever the status quo may be in our politics, I would like to see that person become more empathetic too. But I do think that somebody like myself, who is in a position to sort of more comfortably kind of lean into studying and considering and appreciating the nuances and other people's uh, life experiences, Somebody like me ought to be setting an example in that direction. But more importantly, our elected officials should be doing so. The people leading our institutions, the people leading our churches, the people holding positions of, of authority and responsibility in our schools uh, and certainly in our governments and, and our other, again, uh, prevailing institutions in society, in the media, journalists, right? Um, and yet we see too little of that from the leadership class in our country on every level, I think because there's just so much to be gained uh, by pushing in the other direction. You know, there are natural um, forces that have tipped into sort of artificial developments in our society that exacerbate that problem. I think that American politics was always going to become more difficult as American society continued to become more diverse. And as the circle of civic enfranchisement 
sort of brings new voices into the conversation that tend to sort of cha- challenge uh, pre-existing ways of looking at things. But, you know, then you add on top of that, you know, social media, you add on top of that, you know, before that, the 24-hour news cycle, uh, you add in political reforms that make it possible to gerrymander a district so that if you capture, you know, a base of angry activists, you can just get reelected in perpetuity. I want to I want to go right there. That's exactly where yeah. this is going. Said we, ca- we capture a group of angry activists and we get them going. Reason why this uh, the show is called the Hopeful Majority is because I actually think that we live in a moment where we're held hostage by the loud minority at the expense of the desires of the hopeful majority, which is that we want to live in a society that's open-minded. We want to live in a society that's curious. We want to live in a society where people care about each other, that we privilege empathy over intolerance. So let me ask you this. What can our institutional leader class do? Um, Or do you think it's a question of the people? That maybe the alternative theory to this, John, that you and I talk about a lot, is maybe it's that the institutional class and the leaders are not actually leaders. They're just weatherweights. And they bend whichever direction the loudest voices go. That sounds like a pretty reductive and simplistic theory, but how do you contend with the fact that it seems like every leader right now's incentive is just bending towards the loud minority as opposed to leading an affirmative vision? Are you tired of how divided society is? Do you believe in being open-minded as opposed to being closed-minded? Do you believe that we need to have empathy instead of intolerance when we talk to people that are different than us? Well then, you're part of the hopeful majority. My name is Manu Meal, and every week I host a show called The Hopeful Majority with Manu Meal, where we talk about building a new movement, an aspirational idea of how we move forward, not within party and political labels, but as people. Yes. Well, you know, I do think it's a both and sort of thing. Um, I think that leadership does play a role, but it's it's hard to um you know, it's 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 hard to push against the wind forever. I think that on the one hand, there needs to be a cultural shift uh, in civil society, broadly speaking, in popular society, broadly speaking, that, you know, people who are not necessarily elected officials or the heads of enormous organizations can themselves provi- provide leadership for in the areas of life in which uh, they have a say, uh, in which they have some some currency and help sort of stimulate a larger shift in the way we think and in the way that we feel that our elected leaders and other leaders in society can begin to respond to. And so that's the grassroots parts of it, part of this. But I think that on the institutional level, it still winds up being important for the people who are sort of the gatekeepers of privilege, power, and authority uh, in our society uh, to themselves set a better example and to help pull up that larger sort of shift in consciousness. And if there's that larger shift of consciousness in the grassroots, it'll make it easier in turn for people on the leadership level uh, in institutional society to be able to stand on the wave of that and to set a better example. Um, so I, I'm somebody there. listening to this and I, I'm i like, yes, John Wood, you're 100% right. We Obviously, it's a both and. In some cases, leaders need to lead at the same time. There needs to be a consciousness shift. What can I do? Mm-hmm. What what can I do? Um, and 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 you can take this as practically as you want to take it. Uh, we both work for some amazing organizations that are building movements, or take this in the theoretical. But what can I do as an individual 
to create a grassroots consciousness shift that causes our leaders to recognize that there is a hopeful majority out there. Mm, right. Yeah, I mean, there's some things that are specific to who you might happen to be in society, right? So uh, if you're somebody who is plugged into a church or somebody who's plugged into a union and you have the opportunity to engage with people who might exist across the spectrum of experiences in American life, uh, doing things to try and see to it that the space is there for people to show up uh, as their full as their full persons, you know, whether it's engaging in, you know, I, you know this 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 might sound counterintuitive given how polarized this this phrase is, but you know, I do think that there's some people engaging in sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion work that's actually sort of inclusive, right? That actually makes space for people to communicate their own perspectives in terms of their cultural and political sorts of worldviews and makes it easier for people and not harder for people to sort of work together um, in whatever their space may be. An excellent example of this, of course, would be the theory of enchantment work that Chloe Valdery has uh, pioneered, but I don't think she's the only one. Um, but if you're in a certain institutional context, if you're in a certain institutional setting, if you're a journalist, try and tell the stories of the American people. And, you know, this is something that Monica Guzman uh, can, can speak much better to than I can. But try and tell the stories of the American people in a way that allows us to understand one another more clearly and more deeply, rather than continuing to traffic in sort of the stereotypes and simple reductions that keep us from being able to make common cause with each other. Different institutional and societal positions will afford different opportunities for having an impact. But the thing that everybody can do is simply root themselves in a sense of goodwill towards your neighbor and a basic sort of feeling of curiosity such that when you have that instinct towards just rendering sort of a quick judgment or writing people off on the basis of the fact that like, oh, you voted for so-and-so, I heard so-and-so say this terrible thing, or I know that they 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 passed this bill or back this policy that I think is thinks terrible. I'm going to write you off as a terrible person. You know, maybe instead ask yourself, okay, why is this position persuasive uh, to to this individual? Is it just because they're bad, or is it because they have an experience that's different than mine, different from mine that allows them to see things in a different way? And if I understood that deeply, would I be able to more effectively communicate with that person? Uh, would I be able to sort of shed from myself uh, the sort of bitterness and contempt that comes with thinking that somebody is irredeemable because they have a position that you just can't understand how on earth a good person might have arrived at? It takes a little bit of humility. It takes a little bit of curiosity. But cultivating those values and those qualities within yourself reshifts the frame of your perception so that you can start looking at people and engaging people um, in a different and in a better kind of way. John, that that all sounds great and nice in theory, but you want me to have goodwill towards my neighbors when, name your issue, mm -hmm. world's going to explode because of climate change, let's say I'm a liberal, or, uh, you know, uh, free speech is under attack, religion is declining, um, uh, there's gender ideology being pushed on me, or as I, I'm being attacked as, as, as somebody based on my identity, and you want me to have goodwill. I'm in full alignment with you, man, that we are living in a moment where the hopeful majority needs to demonstrate that not only is goodwill necessary, but that we all want that goodwill and we're ready to practice it. You're 100% right. But can uh, steel manning the case for a second that maybe goodwill is not what we need? Maybe what we need is the fight. How do you respond to that? 
Well, so a lot of what I talk about is the philosophy of nonviolence that Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, practiced and exemplified and taught in the context of the, of the civil rights movement and the nonviolent movement in which he led. And so what Dr. King believed is that love or agape love, which you can interpret as goodwill, um, is a spiritual force that can affect social transformation. Basically, basically what King believed is that we ought to speak to the conscience of those individuals and those groups of people who stand against us, who might in fact stand firmly against justice itself, uh, whether they realize that's what they're doing or not. Uh, because in so doing, we can show these individuals and we can show these groups of people that we are not in fact their enemy, that even when we have a an oppositional point of view, we are speaking truth and we are striving for a better world so that we can make a better world and a better community for all of us, not just for ourselves alone, but for the very people who we may find ourselves in opposition to. Now, King himself was confronted with the argument, which said that, well, why should I have to, you know, why should I love somebody who hates me? Why should I show goodwill to racists who would deny my very existence who might kill me if they had, if they had a chance? not to argue that it's fair, but King's response was twofold. On the one hand, by showing goodwill to your opponent, you make it more likely that you can actually reach their conscience and change the way they see things. But if you, even if you fail to do that, or even if you fail to do that in the space of a single interaction, by rooting yourself in a sense of goodwill and compassion towards that other individual, an individual or a group of people who, in being caught in the midst of hatred or contempt themselves, are actually caught in the midst of something like a spiritual virus, a spiritual disease. They are themselves victims uh, of the bitterness that they feel. Well, you relieve yourself of the burden of that, bitter, of that bitterness. You relieve yourself of the burden of that contempt. It's not something that actually feels good to walk around with those feelings day after day, even if we get them to be addicted to them. I think it was King who said, let no man bring you so low as to make you hate him, right? Um, there is an empowering, there's an empowering experience that comes with being able to develop a greater reservoir of compassion for the people who have no compassion for you. You know, you, you come to realize that nothing that they say to dehumanize you uh, means anything more than the fact that these individuals themselves are in pain and they're trying to share that pain with you. And that's a sad thing, right? You don't have to accept that pain within yourself, and certainly not the pain of feeling that you yourself are less than human. But what you can do uh, is speak to the capacity for good in these individuals and reawaken them to the idea that they can be better than they are by being better yourself, right? And by being better yourself, what we often think about is that we live in one of the most diverse societies in the history of humanity. You've got people, when you look around, John, you go outside your door, you've got people that look different than you from different backgrounds, different religions, different ethnicities. And if we lose that goodwill, then how do we manage this amazing and ambitious experiment that is diverse? And I'm going to take a victory lap for a second because I just think I got you in the zone. I, I know John Wood in the zone and I felt that spirituality, brother. And I want to actually ask you to argue against yourself for a moment. Because I think the challenge that we in the hopeful majority face is not a challenge of convincing each other that goodwill is necessary, that empathy is necessary. The challenge that we fundamentally face is that we're trying to sell broccoli. 
mm-hmm. to a world where you know what fighting each other yelling at each other doing twitter hot takes is nice so can you argue against yourself for a moment and maybe make the case for why what we don't need at this moment is good because i think in the spirit of nuance and in the spirit of stepping outside of our bubble we can actually become better advocates for the argument that you're fundamentally forwarding sure well one argument that you can make against it is the one that you just made or just echoed which is that it's sort of not fair right it can potentially call upon people who are in a disadvantaged position to have to have to do the emotional do the emotional labor of empathizing or having compassion for people who have none for them and you know I've just sort of given you what Dr. King's response at least to that would have been and so that's my that's my response as well here I think the other argument you can make against it is to just say that look on some level um, this is naive and impractical that you can't win a fight without fighting the fight right? And that if you are somebody who's leaning into kindness and charity, you are likely uh, to, to towards people who do not hold these values or who do not have an attitude uh, embodying these values towards you, then you're making yourself vulnerable to abuse and mistreatment and to defeat uh, in the grand battlefield for justice. And so why surrender your arms? Right? Why make yourself available to be walked on? But you know, I I I think that the the problem in this way of looking at um, love and goodwill is simply the fact that it's responding to a conception to a conception of goodwill that makes it seem like mere sentimentality, mere mere nicety, right? Um, Kindness without any sort of strength or resolve or vigor. And so Dr. King responded to that critique, too. He said that, you know, when I speak of love, I don't speak of emotional bosh, right? Um, Not mere sentimentality. Dr. King said that love and power go hand in hand. He was concerned with both. He said that love without power is weak and anemic, but that power without love is authoritarian and brutal. See, the thing is, is we have to hold a tension that admittedly is hard to hold, but the tension that we have to hold is between, on the one hand, uh, speaking truth in a way that does not sacrifice in any way the full power and potency of the message that you have to get across to other people. We have to be willing to challenge other people, to challenge each other, our opponents and also our friends when, we're, when we are in error. And yet, as firmly and fiercely as we challenge each other, we have to also be able to do that in a frame of goodwill and kindness and mutual humanization, right? We have to be able to go to, to, to lean into the idea that I am challenging you. I think you are wrong. I am seeking to defeat you in the context of our political debate. And also, I love you and I want to see good things happen to you. I'm about to jump out of my chair because I think that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I think and we will have, by the way, guests on John that are, are are opposed or think that I am naive for this concept of the hopeful majority, that to your point, um, that maybe there is some strength needed at important times. But to your point, the hopeful majority is not a bunch of ideological squishy moderates. We are ready to have challenge. We're ready to have disagreement. The question is, 
what table are we building to have that disagreement on? Are we willing to have a disagreement, come back and have the disagreement tomorrow? Are we willing to live in a society where each of our differences are respected? I want to close out with two, three actually quick questions, if you can humor me. I would want your longer responses, but John Wood Jr. is busy, everybody, and he's got a flight to catch. And by the way, to my credit, John, we've gone over the 45 minute mark. That's just, that's just, I just want you to know that. I just want you to know that. The conversation is still interesting. You said it would be. Three questions. You seem like a guy filled with hope. You seem like you belong in the hopeful majority. Seems like that's what you forward. After meeting so many people in your career, what has surprised you about people? Oh, that's a good question. I think one thing that surprised me about people is how quickly they can they can pivot from being angry and, 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 and bitter towards, towards others to then saying, oh, but, you know, I, I, I do want to see a gentler world. You know, I want to see a world where we can actually get along and be friends. Um, that's, that's uh, and, and you know what, I think that they're being honest in both directions. Uh, people are filled with contradictions. Again, our tendency is to want to reduce people to one thing. And, you know, if we're biased against them, it's towards the, towards the bad thing we can identify. And if we're biased uh, towards them, then uh, we want to define them according to whatever the good thing is we, we, we happen to want to focus in on. But we contain multitudes, you know? And um, I think that I've come to realize that, you know, many folks who are, who you would think just will never be available to uh, a more reasoned way or a more deeply sort of humanizing way of looking at issues, looking at differences and looking at, looking at certain other people can actually get there pretty quickly. (laughs) If you're talking to them, you know, one-on-one in the right context with the right lead up, you know, maybe with the right song playing on the radio. we kind of tilt into these different ways of seeing things, you know, but we have the capacity to transform more fundamentally and more quickly sometimes than we realize. People are contradictions. A lot of people would say that America is a contradiction in some ways. What does America mean to you? Yeah, well, that's a big question. I, I think that, you know, many people will say that the United States of America stands out above nations because it is a nation founded not on the ties of blood, but on the power of certain ideals. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, right? The ability to speak freely, uh, individual rights, our capacity, our commitment to self-governance. And I think that America is all of those things. I think that America also is the... I think America is also a collection of stories and lineages and histories from groups that, in that sense, makes America like other nations that have histories, that have sort of, in many respects, sort of blood-bound ancestries or religious traditions that tie one generation to the next over time. I think the thing that makes America stand out is that in her diversity, uh, these lineages come into conversation with one another. And out of many, you know, in our best, we are out of many one. There's some greater enterprise that is the product of all of these unique streams of human experience coming together and blending together and, and creating people with, you know, uh, uh, sort of 
uh, unique and mold breaking uh, life experiences in some ways, like you and I, perhaps, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I now one could say that, yes, America is made up of many different streams of experience, but we want everybody to sort of melt into something called American culture. Right. And there's a degree to which I embrace that, but a degree to which I, I caution on that front, because I, I, I do think that it is okay to have, to hold on to some distinctive value to your particular cultural tradition or religious tradition. I think there should always be room in America for that. But I do think that there's something transcendent uh, about the love and the goodwill and the respect that we can have for each other as human beings that can buy us together in the thick cords of brother and sisterhood. Uh, even as we maintain some fidelity uh, to our own sense of connection to our ancestors and to our lineages and to our own particular histories. I think that there is, again, a tension that does not necessarily need to be a contradiction. And to your point, out of many, one is really only possible if we live in a world that values listening and engagement and tolerance and empathy that if we lead with anger hate judgment and i mean this across the board ideological diversity viewpoint diversity identity demographic diversity we need that um this is the last question john that we end every and we will be ending every hopeful majority show with uh and you're the first you're the first step back which is both a high yeah. a high wire position to be in but also means that there's only it's only up from here so no pressure um <laughs> which is and the reason why we ask this question always is because one of the things when we built bridge we always led with and we always lead with our students is is what is your purpose what is your why i think that our purpose drives us um hopeful majority not hopeful majority the point is that if we have purpose and if we can share our purpose with people either people will see themselves in that purpose or it'll help them find their own. And for me, one of the most liberating things to be able to keep maintaining this ethos of hope is having a very strong grasp on my why. What is your why? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I'm happy to be the first person to answer on the hopeful majority. What is my why? You know, my why is just this unquenchable uh, desire and even need uh, to see what the world could be like and certainly what America could be like, what America could be like and what my own life could be like if as many of us as possible were to see one another in the fullness of our humanity, you know, in the fullness of our human dignity and really perhaps um, a way to kind of apply the full flavor to that is to say that whether you take this as literal or metaphorical, I want to see a world in which we all looked at each other as genuinely being made in the image of God, that we were all sacred and treated each other according to that idea. Um, again, even if you just take that as a metaphorical statement, imagine what the world could be like if we related to one another in that way and shared in the beauty and the abundance of our country and of this incredible uh, land and, and um, planet that we hold in common from this place of overarching love for each other. You know, I would love to see a world like that. 
and all of the possibilities that that would open. And I think that America is a great promise, uh, brings with it sort of the promise of a world like this, you know? Uh, there had to be a United States of America for the dream of that kind of transcendence, I think, to even survive into the future. Because at a certain point, we do have to transcend race. We do have to transcend religion. We do have to transcend politics and all of these things, you know? And the idealism at the heart of our founding, as imperfect as the whole national experiment has been since then, it still provides us a light of conscience by which we can begin to see that world materializing. And I think that that's what Dr. King saw when he looked out from that mountaintop at the promised land. I think that that's, that's the American future that he beheld and that we still behold uh, as we walk together here into the future. John Jr., if people share your why, where can they find you? <laughs> well, they can find me at braverangels.org, and they can also find me uh, on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at uh, John R. Wood Jr. And uh, yeah, I'll be looking out for you. Safe flight, John. And that's a wrap on episode one, everybody. You're in for a ride. The hopeful majority is building, and we've got a lot of work to do. Yes, sir. That brings us to a close of episode number one of The Hopeful Majority. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining. Thank you to John Wood. Most importantly, remember, we're here every week. Apple, YouTube, Spotify. Next week, we're going to answer the question. Well, why is it so hard to actually be hopeful at this time? Remember, we're fighting outrage and we're building nuance. And I need you to support this content by liking and subscribing if you're on YouTube, leaving a review if you're on Apple or Spotify. We've got a movement to build. We've got voices to elevate. And importantly, remember, most of us are in the hopeful majority. See you next week.